Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with my people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, let's play a little game. How about you see how many people that you could, in good conscience, recommend studs to? Send them your favorite episode. Quiz them on it. Tell them to subscribe. It'll be fun. Everyone's a winner. This episode of Studs features a conversation with Edlyn Bowsen. Edlyn is an ICU nurse for patients with heart conditions at the University of Chicago Medical Center. She talks about the perks of working 12-hour shifts from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. and the challenges of grappling with vulnerability and death. Edlyn saves lives, but she's got zero patience for the hero moniker. After we spoke, she emailed me. I want to read a little excerpt from her email. She said, Identifying us as heroes also makes it easy for people to shame us when we ask to get paid. When we went on strike, we were instructed, if interviewed, to not mention pay, to make it all about patient safety. That's where I see a lack of respect. Because while we, of course, care for our patients, we need to have our own backs as well. This may be a calling, but it's most certainly a job. Edlin saves lives. And she likes waffles. Enjoy my conversation with the powerful Edlin Bowsen. I'll try not to mess this up. Okay. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're working together. We're working together. Uh, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And you'll, you'll figure it out soon enough if you haven't already, right? Right. <laughs> cool. Edlin Bowsen, welcome to Studs. We will get into the how, but first, can you walk me through why you became a registered nurse? Well, I imagine that's not the typical Filipino nursing story. <laughs> um, while I do, while I do have uh, other relatives who are in the medical field as nurses and doctors, going into undergrad, it was jumping from major to major, and you know, not knowing what I wanted to do. Of course, I enrolled in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Started in psychology, jumped around to biology entertained the idea of becoming an architect. (laughs) And I don't actually remember when I met my friend, Grace, Grace Jardine, love you girl. It It was actually her that inspired me to become a nurse, hearing her passion about nursing. And, and I think it's always been in me just to have this kind of nurturing and caring role. Now, when you were studying, Mm -hmm. did you have a vision for yourself working with a particular population? What was the vision like? I wanted to work with babies at first. I just loved being around 
mostly life coming into the world. Hmm. Um, that's not where I started, but uh, right. that, that was the original vision. <laughs> and then you find yourself caring for adult patients with heart conditions. Quite a, mm-hmm. quite a turnabout, I should say. Now, Edlin, this seems like really intense work. Mm-hmm. How did you find yourself caring for adult patients with heart conditions? My first job was actually kind of in a more general ICU. So we took care of heart patients, neuro patients, general surgical and general medical patients. That that was a lot. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah it, it was a lot. But it was just, I guess, driving me most was just the desire to help people. And then moving to U of C, kind of more, I guess, circumstance, that was where the opening was. And it just happened to be specifically with cardiac patients. And I loved that because there are, <laughs> there's a lot involved with general medical ICU patients. We saw a lot of like long-term nursing home patients. And that was hard to see because it was a lot of, to me, it seemed like prolonging suffering for those patients. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you were looking for a job and the University of Chicago had one. Mm-hmm. Did you hesitate at all because you, would, you, you had wanted to work with uh, life coming into the world? And next thing you know, you're working with not that. <laughs> um, no, not at all. You know, coming out of nursing school, they told you, you know, don't take the first job that comes at you, blah, blah, blah. But I definitely had friends who had graduated like six months before I did, and they were still having trouble finding a job. So when that opportunity came up, I took it. It was actually, (laughs) uh, I was on vacation in a different time zone, and I magically answered the phone at 6 a.m. where I was and kind of took the job that way. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I, I actually hadn't graduated yet. And it was a surreal phone call. I answered and they asked me a couple of questions. And they're like, oh, are, are you willing to relocate for this job? And sleepily, I was just like, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, that first hospital I worked at was non-union. And the University of Chicago is. And that definitely was a bonus for me because we were being very overworked at that first hospital. So in an ICU, typically you have a one-to-one or a one-to-two ratio where one nurse should have either one or two patients, depending on how heavy of an assignment they are. At that first hospital, we were taking up to three patients on a regular basis. At times, you would be in charge. You would be the charge nurse, and you would still take a team of patients. Oy. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds l- literally overwhelming. Yeah. So I want to dive into the union question a little bit later, because mm-hmm. I am curious about how that all works out. But before we get there, mm-hmm. if I can be so bold, I want to get a sense for what it feels like to work with the population with whom you work. Maybe we should just start here. Like, how does a shift start? Like, what are your hours and what do you do when you get there? 
Um, so I work night shift, so it's 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., but generally I come in maybe 15 minutes prior, and then I usually don't leave until about 7.30 in the morning. So you just come in, you'll check your assignment, and then you'll grab report from that day shift nurse, generally just going over the patient's course and what happened that day or recently that's pertinent to what's currently happening with the patient, because that can be very different from when they first come in. So working on this cardiac unit, sometimes we get patients who are waiting for a transplant. So they can be there for days, weeks, months waiting for this transplant. And they have to stay with us because of the extra support from devices that they're on. So yeah, that can just change even from hour to hour. Patient situation can change. And so potentially, presumably, in fact, Mm -hmm. a lot of your patients, particularly those who are waiting for a transplant, they're sentient, they're awake, they're not having maybe the best day of their life, but they are conscious and you are able to interact with them, right? Absolutely. And then one day you come in and that could, that could change mm-hmm. pretty, pretty rapidly. Yep. Okay. Even, even staying there, <laughs> even on my shift, we could be talking the whole shift and the next second they're just in a much worse shape. <laughs> so you get to work. You check in on your patients, you, you see, you know, with whom you're going to be working and what your responsibilities are for the day. Is there like mm-hmm. a team meeting? Is there when that shift starts, do you mm-hmm. confer with your team to sort of check in on what everyone's responsible for that day? Um, not really. Okay. So, wow, gosh, how many beds are we now? We just took on like four more beds. So I think we became like a 30 32 or 33 bed unit, which is huge. It's huge. (laughs) I could be on one side and have completely no idea what's going on in the rest of the unit. It's usually just one um, or two doctors on night shift that I'll be in regular contact with and the charge nurse and the nurses immediately around me. Mm. And you have at the University of Chicago, two patients. Uh, One to two. One to two. Yeah. They each have their own room usually or? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All of our rooms are private. You, you walk in, you figure out what you need to do and you confer with whomever you might need to confer, but basically you get straight to work mm-hmm. and you have a pretty good sense of what needs to be done. What needs to be done? Uh, night shift is usually getting them as tucked in as possible. Uh, it's difficult for a lot of our patients to actually sleep. There's constant beeping, if not from their own machines and monitors from the patient next door or at the nursing station. We have a large central monitor with all the patients and that's constantly alarming. It's it's trying to settle them in for the night as best as possible, getting them their nightly meds, And it's a lot of trying to convince them that they need the rest for the night because generally the days are busier. So that's when all of uh, what we call road trips happen. So if they need to go for any imaging or other testing, uh, that generally happens during the day. You get to greet them Mm -hmm. when you come in. 
Mm-hmm. I would imagine that a lot of them want company. Mm-hmm. It, it can be really lonely, especially at night. And especially with COVID going on. So we restricted visitors for a long time. So that was definitely a different time. And there's a lot of patients just wanting to, you know, hold my hand or just have a longer conversation than we normally would. You get to know them. Mm -hmm. Is it hard to connect with them knowing that uh, for one reason or another, they won't be your patient forever? Um, no, I actually like the connections. That's that, I think that's the easy part. The harder part is letting that connection get to you when things get hard. <sighs> the very first, uh, the very first patient death that I had, I took really, really hard. Can I swear? <laughs> yes, I'll as much as much as you want. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I took that really fucking hard. And that was one of those moments where patient did wonderful all night. We were talking as much as we could. And I had just gotten off the phone with their family because they were coming in from um, out of state. And literally the moment I was done giving report, I see him waving his hand at me. And all of a sudden he just codes and he passed. Um, And yeah, I stayed like two hours over my shift, just like bawling uh, with the family uncontrollably. Oh, and then that sounds so hard. Yeah. Um, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, kind of after that situation, um, I don't know like how I actually learned to compartmentalize better or kind of not let that connection get to me as much. Or I don't know if I got like desensitized to it because literally the next assignment that I had a week later was in that same room and that patient actually also passed. <sighs> However, that one was kind of expected. So it didn't like, (laughs) didn't hit me as hard. And then I think the next week of assignments I had, I had a patient pass in a different room, but in the same kind of corner of the unit. And somehow it continued to get a little bit less painful. Yeah. Is there a discussion among your colleagues, fellow nurses about how you respectively kind of grapple with the difficulties, the impossibility really of, of death, of, of suffering and death. Yeah. Uh, at UFC actually, we have kind of an ethics committee that will come around and have debriefings after an especially difficult case. De- debriefing sounds so not what I, <laughs> that, that, that sounds like the opposite of what I would want, right? <laughs> I don't think I would want to debrief. I would want something, something else. Yeah. What, what is a debriefing? 
And is there whiskey involved? <laughs> no, definitely no alcohol involved. Yeah, yeah, um, it's just kind of, you know, going over what happened and going over like, Hey, we did everything that we could. And if there were any ethical concerns, kind of addressing those when we could, but yeah, just kind of going over what we did and making sure that the course of what happened was in line with what the patient wanted. Uh, Cause oftentimes we can feel like the prolonging of suffering or Maybe we feel like this is against the patient's best interests and that being quality of life. Is there a vehicle or some sort of pathway for you to express your concern that a patient's quality of life issues are not being appropriately tended to? Yep. Yep. So it's that same ethics committee. We are, uh, as nurses, we're able to put in an ethics consult whenever we feel that way. We're not always involved in what happens afterwards, but. Can I ask whether you've lodged one of these concerns? I have. Yeah. Can I ask if it's something that you have to do with some frequency? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I would hate to violate any codes or terms of confidentiality, Mm -hmm. but I would be curious as to how frequently you feel obliged to report your concern. Not too frequently. I mean, I can count on one hand the number of times I've done so, and I've been a nurse for almost 10 years now. So, okay. Is it particularly grueling? when you're working to save a patient and you feel like the institution is working against the patient's interests? Oh yeah, definitely. Sometimes these patients are with us for a long time and sometimes they are not doing well for a long time, but because of what we are told the patient's wishes would be. We must keep going. It's hard to see, you know, a patient there suffering. And what I mean by that is that, you know, they're, they've been in bed so long that no matter what we do, they get bed sores or their organs are failing. So they're carrying all this extra water weight and um, eventually they third space, which is where fluid goes out from the cell and into spaces that they shouldn't be in. So they swell up with blisters, like blisters the size of their thigh Mm. with all the moving and turning, just taking care of the patient. Those can rupture. And so now they've just got this open area of skin and it's just so painful to look at. And the nature of your work is to forge forward Mm -hmm. and keep your empathy levels up and try to breathe and try to smile. Sometimes, yeah. (sighs) Do you find yourself 
in the wee hours of the night, having long conversations with your patients. Is there time for that? Uh, sometimes. Sometimes. Ugh, some nights are just too busy. Sometimes, especially now with COVID. <laughs> Those patients that don't really get the many, you know, FaceTime calls with a family member or friends. Sometimes they tell me about their lives. and <laughs> Right. I mean, it's overwhelmingly clear that in addition to all of the difficult work, the signs of it all, mm-hmm. the being on your feet all day or all night, you know, the insane hours, mm-hmm. that you also have the added burden because you have to deal with suffering and death. That part of you, so much of your job is centered around the need to protect your own mm-hmm. boundaries and your own mm-hmm. psychological well-being. Mm-hmm. How do you draw emotional boundaries around your work life? Like, how do you grapple with bringing work home? You know, going back to that first patient death. After that, I was kind of like, okay, I need to, I need to get it together. I don't know how I kind of went into this auto compartmentalization mode, but I knew that I I had to in order to do my job effectively. Mm. And you do still bring some of that emotional baggage home. And, you know, you just kind of have to just decompress decompress as best you can and talk it out with whom you can, you know, without violating any HIPAA laws. (laughs) Right, right. Um, do you have a practice that you do? Is there a routine that you put yourself through to try to, in a way, cleanse yourself of a night's work? <laughs> Before leaving, just kind of taking the time to recenter, do a little breath work and, you know, reassure myself that I did everything that I could. Mm. And then a the long shower, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Long shower, deep exfoliation. (laughs) (laughs) You have patients of all ages, right? I mean, you have people in their 40s and above. Even 20s. 20s all the way up to 89, 91. I don't think I've had anyone older than 91. (laughs) And is it a totally different work experience working with someone who's in their thirties, who, if they can beat this thing, they got another, mm-hmm. you know, 50 years ahead of them versus mm-hmm. working with someone who, you know, they're in their eighties and it's a different trajectory. Sometimes because honestly, sometimes I, I get these older patients, like my, my recent patient, he was in his late seventies and he was, he looked great. He's very, active and seemed like he still had a wonderful, wonderful life. Um, and then sometimes you get these younger patients who are already nursing home patients. Hmm. Sometimes it seems like, you know, agent, nothing but a number. <laughs> Here's the hoping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, in addition to having a broad range of ages you deal with a broad range of personalities 
Mm-hmm. How do you work with difficult patients? A lot of that is just kind of sucking it up. <laughs> um, and you can try to draw boundaries and limitations with uh, difficult patients, but uh, there's only so much we can do. Sometimes it's the nurse and the patient's personality is clashing. Other times it's just the patient. And in that case, we kind of start an assignment rotation where uh, we keep track of which nurse is taking care of that patient. And sometimes they're a one and done kind of thing where you take care of them for one shift. And even if you're back the next night, the assignment goes to another nurse just to kind of keep everyone's sanity. Yeah. Spread, spread the pain a little bit. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Teamwork makes the dream work. You also probably have to work with some difficult doctors. I would imagine (laughs) there is no shortage of ego. Mm -hmm. I've learned among doctors, particularly high performing doctors. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's what's necessary to operate um, at that level. I, I, I guess I wouldn't know. Mm-hmm. What's the nurse-doctor relationship like uh, in on your wing? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty fortunate. I guess I have not had to work with very difficult doctors. Um, and working nights, I, I don't see many of the uh, attendings. But those that I have met were super helpful, super nice, very willing to teach I guess I have to be because UFC is a, a teaching hospital. So the, the doctors that I deal with most are the residents. And most of them are also willing to learn from, you know, the more seasoned nurses. And I, I'm very fortunate in that. I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. You have these sort of unfortunate hours, but at least you get to spend those hours with some helpful doctors. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I just ask really quickly, like if you had your druthers, would you work the day shift? <laughs> I don't know. I've never really tried. <laughs> uh, I've always been more of a night owl. So like when I first got hired and was doing my orientation, you, you always start on the day shift. Um, Cause that's where you can see, you know, more action, more procedures and just, kind of to acclimate you to the unit better. And (laughs) when I was going through that orientation period, I was like a zombie for the first hour or two. (laughs) So I think it was just a matter of getting my body more used to that. But I mean, yeah, I've I've been night shift for almost (laughs) 10 years. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So you do three three shifts a week or something like that. How, what's the, what's the rotation here? We self schedule prior to all the happenings of COVID. I actually scheduled myself. Um, <laughs> I would work six shifts in a row and then I would get eight days off. Whoa. Yeah. How's your passport doing? <laughs> uh, yeah. That's kind of why I did it because that everything is granted by seniority So being at the bottom of the totem pole, I knew that I maybe wasn't going to have all my vacations approved. So I just kind of built in vacation time to my schedule. And, you know, in the beginning, it kind of helped me 
with my sleep. Um, cause I would just kind of be in one rhythm and then only have to adjust for a day. And then I had, you know, a whole week to live out a normal schedule. So you have these 12 hour days and it allows for an interesting and sometimes, you know, um, opportunistic schedule. And is it the case that your 12 hour days are, are very much protected that your 12 hour shift is a 12 hour shift and they can't keep you beyond that. Uh, the university of Chicago hospital is a union shop for nurses, right? Mm, yes. Um, can you talk a bit about your relationship with the nurses union? I can say that I don't know all the ins and outs of what goes on with our nursing union. Um, I just can draw off my experience of, you know, my first half of my career working in a non-union hospital to working in a union hospital. At the non-union hospital, I kind of talked about, you know, the, the ratios that we had and it was beyond what I would consider safe for an ICU, but it was something that we all kind of sucked up and continue to do. They're still not a union hospital. And from what I hear, they're still just as busy as when I worked there. And being at a union hospital, our ratios are mostly protected. Although in the beginning of where I started at this hospital, there are patients that we consider to be a one-to-one who we are now having to pair and make a one-to-two. Or you always hear rumors about, you know, the hospital wanting to bust the union. And we see that every four years when our contract is up and we start negotiations for our new contract. When I first started, they had just finished contract negotiations and we lost out on a couple things. Uh, we lost our pension for night shift. We lost our differential. So originally, UFC was offering 20% of our base pay as their differential. And now it's just kind of a flat rate, which a lot of other hospitals do. What's a differential? Sorry. Uh, it's the compensation we receive for working third shift. And you lost it. Uh, we lost it. Sorry. Yeah, well, we just finished up another round of negotiations. Um, we actually had our first strike ever in the history of UFC, I think. And we still kind of <laughs> maybe lost out on a couple of things. Depends on how you look at it. I don't know. It feels like they try to pit nurse against nurse. Like in that first one where, you know, you lost the differential, it was kind of pitting day shift nurses versus night shift nurses. Right. What happened last year, it was kind of pitting or trying to pit new nurses versus veteran nurses. The old divide and conquer, huh? <sighs> yeah, pretty much. They were also trying to pit like the adult side versus the pediatric side. That was... An interesting one that was kind of messed up <laughs> so you have to stay or at least it's in your interest to stay 
abreast of and active in union affairs and contract negotiations? Um, yeah, I mean, there's <laughs> not, not your favorite part of the job, huh? <laughs> well, no, not really. I should probably get to know more of the ins and outs of how the union works because it seemed like it was a small, small group of nurses and our union working to negotiate against the hospital's team of hired professional lawyers. <laughs> and we kind of didn't have that backing. So the old knife to the gunfight, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As these things go, that sounds like it can be really stressful. I hope that your union holds strong and I could see a world where in due time, perhaps you a more active role in that. <laughs> I know you got to fight in you, but you know, you, you choose your battles and you pick your timing. You, you deserve that. Yeah. Engaging in those types of dirty politics. And that's ultimately what it is. Mm -hmm. It's quite a grind. And there's a lot of your job that is a grind much of oh, the yeah, entire job, <laughs> the entire job. Like your, your work is that what you think? Does, does your work, is the whole thing a, a grind? Is there part of it that really vexes you more? Is there like a biggest grind to your job? Like mentally, emotionally, and the physicality of it is, I think, a lot more than people imagine. I mean, I'm, you know, five foot on a good day, 100 pounds, and I'm having to care for patients who are upwards of, you know, 300 pounds and sometimes not very mobile. You're a power lifter at this point, huh? <laughs> Something I kind of have to be. <laughs> In our unit, we don't have any nursing assistants. So it's up to us to do all of the patient care. Um, so that's the bathing, the turning, the moving, I'd imagine the physicality of it could wear on you perhaps almost as much as the, you know, emotional and psychological challenges of the gig. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, one of my uh, coworkers just had a second hip replacement. So <laughs> he's, I mean, he's been there a long time, but you know. Yeah. But despite it being a grind, there must be some days where it feels real good. Can you paint a picture of a satisfying day? A uh, satisfying day really just depends on what's been going on. You know, if it's been a particularly difficult week, it feels really good to have a shift where we can all just kind of relax, <laughs> you know, get to get to know our patients, talk to them a little bit, be able to sit down, be able to eat a full lunch. Other times when it's really busy, it's really, really satisfying to help that patient get through whatever emergency occurred that night, especially because a lot of the times at night, there are much, much less resources available to us in terms of care teams, right? So, the main team of doctors isn't there. Most often, you know, they're, they're doing 
their procedures and surgeries all day. So they're not going to come back at night. So we're kind of left to manage the situation until morning. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's a good response to this question, but I'm desperately curious. So I hope you'll forgive my asking. Mm-hmm. I listened to you talk about your work and I'm listening to you in the throes of a pandemic. And at least early on in this pandemic in March Mm -hmm. and April, and I think to a much lesser degree still now, Mm -hmm. nurses went from being, you know, workers to being heroes. And I remember, you know, uh, banging pots and pans out my apartment (laughs) window on a Sunday evening in March. Mm -hmm. And there was a catharsis to it, but I'm not sure how I feel about the charge of heroism. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you feel about it. Oh, I fucking hate it. (laughs) Fucking hate it. You got strong feelings. Yeah. What do you you fucking hate about it? I'm not, I'm not a hero. Also, I actually read opinion piece in uh written by a doctor in the new york times and it was before this pandemic hit but it was basically saying that hospitals kind of exploit doctors and nurses for counting on them to do the right thing to suck it up and do what needs to be done so it's kind of like this this justification for mistreatment yeah um and i totally totally agree with that do you think it comes from a good place do you think that people who call nurses heroes are you know just trying to like signal that they care or you think it's they're just despite that totally misguided or both i think definitely misguided and i don't i mean most of the people who well, a lot of cis heroes, I don't think they mean anything bad by it. But if it's coming from administration, I don't, I, I think there is some, <laughs> I don't trust them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Call them, call them heroes, you know, and then kick their legs out from under them when you can. Right. Right. Cause you don't have to pay heroes. Right. Exactly. They chose to do it. <laughs> It's comforting to hear that you fucking hate it because I fucking hate it. I just have no patience for (laughs) this misguided kind of Mm self-righteous heroification or deification of people who are just working hard. They're working hard. And we are working hard. We're not playing cards. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, just this idea that if we glorify people, then we don't have to pay them or we don't have to show them respect because you know because they have capes right and people with capes don't need respect dignity a raise a pension or even that people with capes are bulletproof right because we're definitely not we're only human that's spot on right because if you're a hero then you don't have feelings about this like you're just you know, you're flying into the fucking hospital, like literally flying because you're a hero, right? <laughs> you know, and you're just, 
you know, dealing with matters of life and death and pain and suffering and isolation and misery. And you're, mm-hmm. you're doing it unscathed because you're a hero. Right. It's a one-dimensional painting of a person. It's wrong. Right. Right. In the throes of this pandemic and going with the whole bulletproof thing, it's just like <laughs> the lack of protective equipment for the doctors, the nurses, respiratory therapy, and even our um, our EVS workers, the housekeepers, the janitors. They don't need a pension because heroes don't need pensions. Mm-hmm. Just praise them as heroes and everything else should sort itself out. You know, I've done my job. I've posted on Facebook that nurses are heroes. <laughs> yeah, fuck that. Yeah, oh, yep. <laughs> so you're not a hero, but I admire what you do. Thank you. And you've had triumphs. You've had failures. Would you be so kind as to just tell me the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure? Please tell me the failure first so that we can end on a note of triumph. (laughs) I think just in general, feeling like not being enough of an advocate for my patient when it comes to those ethical grinds. I could see what a couple of reasons why you wouldn't want to get too far into that. And so I'll respect that, but I can assume and imagine that you've, you've learned from those failures and you will, that you are, and you will continue to be an advocate. Mm -hmm. Give me the triumph. (laughs) There was one night where we had a patient who came out fresh from uh, surgery and they were just not doing well. They were just bleeding the whole night. And I think we pushed over a hundred blood products throughout the course of the night. And that patient was definitely not, (laughs) definitely not a one-to-one patient. That was like a five-to-one patient where there was just nurses rotating in and out of that room trying to help out. We we knew that they weren't going to be able to go back to surgery until the morning. And so it was kind of up to us nurses that were there to get the patient through the night because this patient was bleeding so much. They had several chest tubes in place that needed to continuously be milked. And because if they weren't, they would have clotted off and then all that blood would just kind of pool in the patient and start compressing things that they shouldn't. So while you had some nurses slamming in blood products, you had some nurses kind of making sure that drained out. (laughs) God, that sounds so bad. (laughs) Um, Just kind of keeping this flow as smoothly as possible. And that patient did great afterwards. So (laughs) That's great. That is a triumph. You saved a life. You save lives. You save lives. Still Still not not a a hero. hero. (laughs) How does it feel when I say that to you? You save lives. You save lives. Um, (laughs) It is weird to hear. It's almost like a cringe moment. (laughs) 
just like, I don't, I don't really like hearing that. Just knowing that I help people. That's kind of more how I like to say it and hear it. Mm. I don't know why that feels so cringy to say. <laughs> so I don't want to like brag about it. Yeah. Humility goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And you save lives. <laughs> so, Edlin, uh, I never let a guest leave without begging them for a recommendation. Mm-hmm. Half of my guests during the last season of this podcast asked me to find a nurse to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we are. Now it's your turn. recommend a guest I should pursue. This could be a specific person or more generally a profession that you'd like to learn more about. Well, I hope I did them justice. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know a lot about any other profession other than healthcare. (laughs) Um, You should start a podcast. That's why I started this one. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess people in like the financial world, whether they be like, a derivatives trader or I mean, like what is it really just the money that drives them in that profession? I think I would have to do a lot of research. Right. Right. But I'm in, I'm going to try to find someone in the financial industries. In fact, now that I'm thinking about it, I know exactly to whom I will speak and uh, I will tell them that you sent me. <laughs> Edlin, thank you so much for being candid. I am so grateful to have had the opportunity to learn about your work and how you engage with it. It seems evident to me that you engage with it wholeheartedly and that can't be easy. But I am I'm moved by so much of what you've said. I admire what you do. I respect what you do. It is literally unimaginable to me, but you have, for whatever it's worth, my profound respect and my gratitude. Mm. So thank you both for sharing your stories with me and for what you do. And you can cringe all you want, (laughs) but woman, you save lives. (laughs) Thanks for coming on the podcast, Edlin. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the kind words. Okay. Bye. Bye. And there you have it. Now you know a whole lot more about the work of an ICU nurse. And you got to meet Edlin. She's the best. It helps me if you subscribe to the show, leave a comment, leave a review. And hey, come on now. Share studs with your people. I'll catch you on the next episode. Take care, kids. Are there bars that are open at 8 o'clock in the morning for you? Uh, Mostly we call that going out to brunch. (laughs) You probably can't even get good waffles anymore. Everything's so um, advanced in the Chicago dining scene. No, you still can. I'm, I like pancakes better, but. <laughs> really? Your pancakes above waffles? Yeah, 100%. Oh. Pan- pancakes were my oh. ramen going through college. Like, 
fuck ramen. I ate that growing up. It was all about pancakes for me. But the the syrup just goes into the pancake. The waffle holds the syrup in these little beautiful containers. <laughs> it's the same ingredients, but one's just, I'm sorry, Eddie, this is one's vastly superior to the other. And you're taking the inferior vehicle for syrup. No. <laughs> I mean, that may be the case, but uh, just the, the texture of pancakes make you really feel like you're eating cake for breakfast. It's great. Well, I mean, you, I mean, you are. In, in either case, you're eating cake. <laughs> um, now, just straight pancakes, right? No, or do you go through the whole oh, pantheon no. of blueberry? Yeah, yeah, that's the beauty of pancakes. You can change them up with one ingredient. Can't really say that about waffles, can you? <laughs> All right, you might have you might have just won the great waffle pancake debate. I will. We will not start with the is the hot dog a sandwich debate. 